Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. And my name's Marshall. Are you nervous about this one? A little bit. I'm I'm low-key nervous about this one, just because it's kind of our first in the history we did do the Christmas one. Yeah. I think it's probably going to take us a couple episodes to kind of find our pace in the history thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't spell out the way that it did for the Bible and the... And the catechism, Mm -hmm. but I'm excited for it. Yeah, me too. All that's just to say, if this episode's a train wreck, don't give up on us. Please. (laughs) Yeah, well, and especially with with today's episode, there's a lot we can cover because we have a lot of material. I mean, the New Testament being our primary source, right, for most of what's going on. So it's, it's a matter of like, how do we kind of give people a good snapshot of this, you know, time period that lasted a few decades without leaving out things that are near and dear to people? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even when I was doing this, the point of today's episode is to give a historical backdrop to where we are in the New Testament so that we can transition from the New Testament into extra testamental church history yeah yeah and we agreed upon the pentateuch or the pentecost Mm -hmm. into the 60s the 60s yeah not like groovy time (laughs) actually those 60s were a little less groovy than uh... they were they were far (laughs) less groovy (laughs) depending on depending on whether or not you are roman upper class that's true or everyone else a (laughs) non-citizen i but even at that i found like i needed to go back a little further okay because i i feel like we just there are so many things in history Mm -hmm. that we know about big names that we know about oh yeah that i think we just don't we don't do a good job of interjecting the biblical history into the secular history or the secular into the biblical Mm. Mm. does that make sense yeah i think i know what you're getting at so I'm going to do a quick rundown to catch us up, and you can add some salt and pepper where you see fit, okay, okay. because I feel like we got to go all the way back to 50 BC. Okay. All right. All right. I know. I know. I've taken what was supposed to be a 60-year snapshot and made it 110 years. <laughs> well, that's okay. Let's get moving But here's, here's the quick run. Okay. Everybody knows Julius Caesar. They do. Right? Mm-hmm. Shakespeare, famous, et tu brute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in 50 BC, Rome is compromised. All kinds of civil wars going on. Crazy stuff happening. Julius Caesar rises to the top as the leader of Rome. Yeah. In 44, we have that scene made so famous by Shakespeare Mm. of the, the killing, the murder of Julius Caesar. The Ides of March. The Ides of March. Mm-hmm. So Julius Caesar is murdered, and his great nephew, who he has adopted as a son, mm-hmm. his his great nephew grew up fatherless from the age of four, very poor. Um, Julius passes through one day and says, "Hey, I'm adopting you as a son." He's 19 years old at the time, and he begins a bit of a political career. Right with Julius gone, he takes on a political career. This guy's name is Octavian, mm-hmm. and he will later be known as Augustus Caesar. That's right, the first true emperor of Rome. Right, and and the way that he becomes that, he uh, he's he's not stupid. He nope. knows that Julius was put to death because Rome said we will never be a be led by a single person. Yeah, they'd been a republic for hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. We are going to be a republic. Julius Caesar was seen as taking on too much authority, mm-hmm. and they killed him for it. They did. His best friends. That's why the etu brute, mm-hmm. right? Like, as he's being stabbed literally in the back, which is where the saying comes from, mm-hmm. he's stabbed in the back by your friends. Uh, Brutus, a friend of his, and he acknowledges him. Mm-hmm. You too, huh? Mm-hmm. And he does. At least in Shakespeare's rendition. <laughs> and and so Augustus Caesar's not dumb to this. He becomes 
the ruler by joining with Mark Antony. Mm-hmm. Augustus takes Rome. Mark Antony takes Egypt, along with Cleopatra. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. It's a whole other thing. <laughs> but Mark Antony and Cleopatra decide, hey, let's take Rome. Sure. Uh, Augustus beats them to it, takes them, takes Egypt, makes it a part of Rome. All of a sudden, there's this clout now. Mm-hmm. Rome is stronger than it's ever been. Augustus is kind of aware that he's on slippery slope, and so he turns all authoritative power over to the Senate. Uh, but keeps the military power and keeps expanding everything. And then all of a sudden we have a season of like earthquakes and floods mm-hmm. and people are like, oh, these natural disasters are here because Augustus turned power over to the Senate. We need him to be a supreme ruler. And so they demand that it be so. Uh, and so he becomes that, mm-hmm. right? And all of this is documented by the famous poet Virgil, right? Mm-hmm. We just have all these name drops. And, and that begins in 27, what they call the Pax Romana, mm-hmm. 200 years of peace. Let's not confuse what the Pax Romana is. Mm-hmm. The Pax Romana means there are no civil wars. That's right. There are still lots of wars. <laughs> yeah. And there are uprisings from within certain segments of the populace. One big one we're going to be talking about in, uh, in a week or two. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. Like as, as the, the empire is somewhat stable although i think it's being played up a little bit more it's not really it's peace but it's nah. no yeah yeah and <laughs> and augustus caesar starts realizing this right and he starts running into some problems which means he has to get into some taxation issues that he wasn't trying to do before mm-hmm. taxing the people in a way that he never had mm-hmm. uh and that interestingly enough happens around the year zero yeah, happens around the time Jesus was born, right? Yeah, there's yeah. a a tax called by Caesar Augustus. That's right. That's right. That all the world should return to their homes. Yeah, so that's a bit of the rundown to get us up to zero. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus is born, Augustus Caesar is the leader of Rome, mm-hmm. but that doesn't last long. No, no, no. He's succeeded by Tiberius. Um, and Tiberius, you know, is like his predecessor, Augustus is a relatively effective and stable leader. Yeah. Uh, for the most part. And he is the one ruling, you know, at the time of Christ's ministry, Tiberius is the guy running the show. Um, and he doesn't get a lot of airtime in the scriptures. Uh, but it's again, it's what the rule of Augustus and then Tiberius does is it creates a, political and social framework in the Roman Empire that provides space for things to happen and for some of the things that are going to happen as the church expands. So it's worth mentioning because that relative political stability, um, that Pax Romana that you mentioned, is going to be um, helpful. And, And here's how that space is created. It... Rome has this philosophy of empire that wasn't shared previously by Alexander, Mm. right? Alexander's philosophy was the greatest thing that could happen to these people is that they would become Greeks. Right. That is your blessing. Yeah. You're welcome. Right. Right. (laughs) I have destroyed you and your culture, Mm -hmm. and you're welcome. Mm -hmm. So all the world starts speaking Greek, Mm -hmm. right? That's why you might be a little bit surprised or confused. How come the New Testament is written in Greek? And not Latin. Not in Latin or in Hebrew sure. or Aramaic or all these other languages that we believe should would likely be used by the Jewish people of the time. Mm-hmm. The reason is Alexander the Great, hundreds of years before this, mm-hmm. destroys everything and tries to replace it with Greek. That's true. Everything Greek, the, mm-hmm. all the cultures. The... Romans don't do that. The Romans conquer a people and welcome them and their culture in as citizens. Mm -hmm. And they want for variety. Mm -hmm. They want you to be able to travel from city to city, region to region, Mm -hmm. and find local culture Mm -hmm. being carried out by Roman citizens, Mm -hmm. made citizens upon their conquer. 
Yeah. Well, some people get some, to be citizens. Some. Yeah. The, the, those they've <laughs> selected to name as citizens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and that's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. Alex goes in and decides to call everything Alexandria. <laughs> yeah. There's right? like there's like four Alexandria. Your favorite city in every region. We're just gonna call it Alexandria. Named we're all gonna. Me. It's all gonna be cookie cutter. <laughs> Rome Rome allows for this space, mm-hmm. and that space allows the Jews to practice in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And be Jewish. Yeah. And it allows for these things to... That, that's the space created by a philosophy of empire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so after Christ's death and resurrection, um, what, what's going on in the Roman Empire is we get some less... a, a decrease in the quality of leadership. Uh, AD 37, there's a guy named Caligula. Uh, he's only in there for a few years. And... And even the Roman sources speak very poorly of this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, lavish living, sexual depravity, squandering money. All, the, all the, the wealth that Augustus and Tiberius had accumulated for the empire is just being spent on stupid, stupid things. He would like dress up as Roman gods like Mercury or Apollo and like go in public and pretend, pretend to be a god. Um, <laughs> okay, there was one funny story about this guy. I know we spent talking about the Romans a lot, but he decides he wants to invade Britain. Uh, Julius Caesar had kind of made some inroads in Britain, but hadn't taken it and held it. Yeah, there's just a blink. Yeah, like so, they they take southern the southern part of the islands, yeah. and then they disappear yeah. pretty quickly. So he decides he's gonna. So he gathers his legions and they march to the north of France along the English Channel, and they get there and. You know, maybe it's the weather, maybe it's not trusting the boat so much, but for whatever reason, Caligula decides, you know what, guys, we're not going to go to Britain. We're going to declare war on the sea. And he has his soldiers, these armed, elite Roman legionaries, smack the water with their spears and swords, and then gather a bunch of shells off the beach to bring back as trophies to Rome because he conquered the sea. Right. This dude was not not mentally stable and he caused problems within the Jewish community. He wanted to raise a statue of himself in the, in the Jewish temple. He didn't mm-hmm. end up going through with it cause he died. Um, and he died because he was assassinated by his own guard essentially. Right. Um, and so, yeah. So then you get this like string of guys. So then you get Claudius, you know, who's maybe a little bit more successful. He expands the empire. He actually, he actually, takes britain uh <laughs> not, not just, just the water not just gathering seashells shout out to john piper anyways um but he was also uh eventually assassinated they they think and probably by poison um and potentially by his own wife and this is and the reason for that is because when an emperor had multiple wives um the the different wives would be vying for power because they wanted their son to inherit the throne right right so so there'd be a lot of feuding for for those women their political security and what would help them retain their power was if their son was the emperor because there would be a concept of rival wives oh totally right and if someone else gets it you could as that rival be completely banished oh totally yeah yeah. and so there's suspicion uh that it was his own wife one of his wives who poisoned him because she wanted her son to take the throne and that boy's name was Nero. And if you think the previous emperors had issues, <laughs> wait till you meet Nero. Nero. Yeah, and we won't get too deep into Nero because I think there's some of his story that will will tie into next week's episode. Mm-hmm. But he becomes emperor at 17. Mm-hmm. But that's not what he wanted to do. No. <laughs> what did he, he want to do? He didn't want to take on the family business. No, he didn't. He considered himself to be the greatest actor the world had ever known. <laughs> and he wanted to be on the stage doing amazing mm-hmm. Greek dramas. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, we've entered into the Hellenistic phase. <laughs> well, he, he, Alexander brings into the Hellenistic phase where, although they don't practice the way the Greeks did, they still recognize the Greeks as being the most cultured people to sure, ever live. Sure. And they all want to do Greek things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the Roman things are just renamed Greek things, and sometimes not even renamed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so Nero's like, I understand, Mom, you want me to rule the known world, but I'm an, I'm an actor. I belong <laughs> on the stage. I am a muse. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and uh, we'll get into how things turn out with him, but Again, even the Roman sources, they they paint him as being particularly awful. 
um, and that's going to affect some things in the church that yeah. we get to. And not only awful in sort of like a calculated evil way, mm-hmm. but just sort of off. Yeah. Yeah. There's something strange. I think the more you study Roman history, the more you begin to realize there seems to be a a mental illness problem, persistent issue within the the imperial family. Yeah, that's a pretty common yeah. historical analysis. Yeah, and then, yeah. you know, if you take someone who's unstable and then hand them ultimate power and divinity, um, it gets... It gets wacky. So, yep. anyways, so that's kind of the 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 context of the Roman Empire. So that's where we are mm-hmm. throughout this period of the church, mm-hmm. and we we recognize Jesus around the year two A.D. Mm-hmm. Uh, or B.C. depending. It's debated. Yeah, it's debated. around plus or minus whatever. Yeah, sure. plus or minus four years. It it really in the end doesn't come out. It comes out in the wash. Mm-hmm. Lives to we'll just call the middle. 33. Sure. That gen- that seems to be Again, that, that same plus or minus mm-hmm. of, a, of a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then we have Pentecost, mm. which yeah. is the beginning of the church age. And, and what we really wanted to focus on in this, what we call the apostolic period, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And so the apostolic period, h- how would you define apostolic period? Well, the apostolic period, I mean, it's in the name. So the apostles of Christ, those who have physically seen him, they, they've, they've, they've walked with him, talked with him, they know the Lord Christ. They've been gifted a, a particular and special authority within the church context. Um, also an ability, you know, by the spirit to, to do miracles. It's the, it's the era where these guys are still alive, mm-hmm. essentially. That's the apostolic era. It's the era also when the New Testament is written. Right. Um, and Acts the f- through the epistles. Yep. And the foundations of the church are laid. So, right. Yeah. You Hold on. What? I said Acts through the epistles. It's all the New Testament, mm-hmm. but the, the Gospels mm-hmm. are historical record, mm-hmm. even though the history is only maybe 10 years old. Yeah. And the Acts through the epistles is more of a journalistic review of real-time things yeah i'd yeah that's that's fair yeah that's i think that's a good way to put it yeah so in revelation the future maybe maybe or maybe a bit of both um so at pentecost i mean we see this this massive right this whole this rushing wind event the holy spirit coming upon the disciples and what happens right from the beginning this whole thing starts off with a bang because there are people in jerusalem gathered from many nations Right. So there, these were either ethnic Jews who were, um, you know, who were living in different parts of the world or those who were, you know, maybe proselytes. So maybe they weren't necessarily ethnically Jewish, but they were practicing Judaism. And and it, it records the places that these people were from. Right. So we've got Parthia, uh, Medo-Persia, the Elamites, uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome. Crete and Arabia. So these are like, this is a very multi-ethnic group. Right. And when you, when you put that to a map mm-hmm. and you consider means of travel in the time, mm-hmm. right? It is incredible that these people are here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And, and this, and this, and what happens is as the disciples are preaching, these people from all these different places are hearing them preach in their native tongue, right? So the Holy Spirit has empowered the disciples to preach in languages they did not previously know, right? Um, which is the gift of tongues. That that is like that is what it is, right? It is this mm-hmm. miraculous ability to communicate the gospel in a language that you don't know for the purpose of evangelism, and it's amazing. And that it's like, and it serves as like a hand grenade that just explodes and sends, you know, shrapnel in all sorts of directions because these people are going to hear the gospel preached. They're going to repent, be baptized, and then they're going to go home. Right. And they're going to bring this news with them. And so all of a sudden you see this localized phenomenon Mm -hmm. of Christianity in 
not just in Jerusalem, but mm-hmm. all the area where Jesus traveled mm-hmm. and people came to believe, you see it spreading throughout the empire based on these other peoples. Mm-hmm. At this point, not in great numbers, right? but yeah. spreading. Sure. And it's worth noting the early church at this point is Jewish. Yes. It's, a, it's, a it's entirely Jewish. It's a distinctly Jewish thing. And and even though we just talked about those people from all over, it's very centered in Jerusalem right. in the early days. Right. There's just sprinklings of people who would travel out. Sure. And then in Acts chapter 11, mm-hmm. something wild happens mm-hmm. with Peter. Yeah. To the point that Peter comes back to the apostles in Jerusalem to explain what has taken place. Mm-hmm. And really has this attitude about it, like, hey, I'm just telling you what happened. I didn't say I wanted it to happen. Mm-hmm. Don't slay me. I'm just the messenger. Yeah, yeah. He He's directed to go to the house of a, a, a Roman officer named Cornelius. Um, and he gets this vision to not call unclean what God calls clean and and he begins to realize that this you know this has to do with this relationship with the with the Gentiles because he goes to this man's house and he well he preaches to them but he also eats with them mm-hmm. which causes a stir when Peter comes back but he's like look here's the thing like they believed and the Holy Spirit and the was Holy there spirit was there it's it's a real thing and they had and in and, and at this point again because the church is so is it is essentially exclusively Jewish? They have to um, they have to wrestle with this 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 yeah. whole idea of like, oh, Gentiles are in on this too. Okay, and and not as a second class. Doesn't seem like it, but no. in the exact same way that the Jews are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that does two things. One, it creates a stir within the Jewish church, as you said. It does. Secondly, it opens the door even broader for expansion. Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so not long after this, we start seeing the first bits of persecution. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You have you have situations where you know, I mean, even around the same time where they're, you know, Peter and John being called before the council, we have the the um, martyrdom of Stephen, mm-hmm. kind of the first, which is before. That's Acts that's chapter a, seven. Yeah, it's a couple chapters before. Yeah, so this is already kind of starting. And and most of the persecution is also coming, not coming from Rome at this point. It's predominantly coming from also from within the Jewish community. So you have the believers are Jewish, but also those persecuting the church are also Jew. It's a very like again, it's it's yeah. it's only at this point that things start to expand, and you see churches popping up in places like Antioch, where they're first called Christians, right? Um, and and there's confusion there because it's not directly branched from the church in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So they send people to check it out. Yeah, they're like, this thing is happening. Like, go right. check. Yeah, exactly. Go see if this is legit, right? But in, in chapter 12, we have the first apostle to be martyred. Mm-hmm. And, and it is a Roman mm-hmm. martyring uh, where Herod takes James, mm. right? The One of the sons of thunder, mm-hmm. uh, sons of Zebedee, uh, and and has him arrested in a way that people are, at least in Fox's Book of Martyrs, suggest wasn't uncommon for the time. Mm. But all of a sudden he's dragged out and put to the sword, mm-hmm. and it shocks everyone. Yeah. Romans, or Acts 12, 1 and 2 is the story of this. Uh, and Herod sees that people are pretty excited about it, especially the Jews that he's ruling mm-hmm. are pretty excited about this. And so he says, hey, let's arrest Peter. Right. Right. So so those stories that we have about the arrests of Peter and uh, and Paul and Silas and Barnabas and, and all these people who are arrested and thrown into prison. This mm-hmm. is the backdrop for that. The, the beginnings of persecution mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where James is persecuted and the Jews appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And Herod appreciates the appreciation. Yeah, because he's kind of he's like. He's pretending to be Jewish. He's not. He's technically an Idumean, but he's yep. set up there. I mean, or the, the Herods in general were set there by Romans, and they're kind of like you know trying to keep their people happy to keep their place of prominence. So it's really just. I don't think it's out of any kind of religious zeal on Herod's part. He's mm-hmm. just like, oh, if the people like it, then I'll do it. 
Yeah. Um, but what, what ends up happening around the same time, though, is there are opportunities for outreach and mission. Yeah, because persecution mm -hmm. drops like a rock into a puddle. Mm-hmm. And everyone splashes. Mm -hmm. So where is it Pentecost? You have maybe people that were traveling around sort of starting to sprinkle these churches here and there. Mm -hmm. Like the persecution causes a splash. Mm -hmm. And people instantly start running for the hills in some cases mm -hmm. and taking their faith with them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then we see out of this church in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas and some companions being sent on this first missionary journey kind of outside of that Middle Eastern context. And, um, and, and he, there's a, there's a particular, when you, when you read through the book of Acts there, you see there's a particular method that Paul and his companions do when they go into a town, they always start by preaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath, right? That's what they do. Um, like, like, essentially exclusively like if you read it time and time again they go into the city and they preach to the jews first to kind of see what response there's going to be from within that community and then only afterwards they open it up to the greater community and the only the only exception to that that i can think of off the top of my head is athens yeah and that's not that's like 16 17 yeah that's that's uh yeah that was Essentially, yeah, a lot, <laughs> a lot later. That's that's, right. that's further on in, in the story, but um, but yeah. So in any case, um, they start going from town to town. They're they're opening it up to both Jew and Gentiles, and sometimes persecution is finding them. At one point, Paul Paul has like a group of guys from another city who are following him to the towns he's traveling to to stir up trouble as he's arriving mm -hmm. right like these people are like i mean think about it like you got a job you got family responsibilities but you're so upset by what paul's doing you're, you're gonna like take time off work to go like go on foot to another city just to make sure this guy can't do his thing right um yeah and i mean so anyways paul paul has some troubles <laughs> and, and the, the best part of that is when he is, he's been dealing with the Thessalonians, mm -hmm. it doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. And the statement made about him is, "This man, who is turning the world upside down, mm -hmm. may it be said of us." Yeah, what an expression! Yeah. Seriously. So, Paul is be, is successful on in a lot of these cases. Like, there's people are believing there's churches being founded but again as more and more gentiles are coming into the fold again there's some there's some serious questions and concerns mm -hmm. about how we are going to handle this this new group of people and so essentially there are some within the the Jewish believing community and keep in mind and this is something that we need to keep in mind like many of the converts to like who many of those who believed in Christ came from the pharisaic tradition of judaism right so very strict interpretation of the law even amongst the jewish community and those were predominantly that was predominantly the background of of those jews who then embraced christ right so they are essentially saying they, they literally say unless you are circumcised according to the custom of moses you cannot be saved I mean, that's pretty explicit. That's not saying you should be circumcised. That's saying you can't be saved unless you are circumcised. Right. And, right? and I think the reason, the reasons initially are not ridiculous, hmm. right? Because the reason that we have apostles teaching in the synagogue mm -hmm. is because they're not saying Christianity is a new thing. No, it's not. Yeah. They're saying the promise of Judaism has been fulfilled in Christ. Mm -hmm. This is the continuation right. of that. Right. And so going to that place where people are familiar with the promise mm -hmm. and to say the promise has been fulfilled is the natural progression. Yeah. And so the question really is, is like, do you need to be become a Jew first before becoming a Christian? Right. Do you also have to follow that natural progression? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or can you just come in, come in, with you know with into the new covenant mm -hmm. or do you have to satisfy the old covenant first right um and essentially they so they have this big council and they determine that no you you don't need to you know observe that 
You don't need to observe other areas of the law, but they do ask them to do a few things. Uh, to avoid what's polluted by idols, sexual immorality, um, things that have been strangled, and blood. And that might seem like an odd mix. Essentially, it's just the things associated with pagan worship. Mm-hmm. right? All of those things are part of pagan religious practice. So, you know, stuff that's involved with idol worship, sexual immorality, like uh, cult prostitution was a huge thing uh, throughout the Roman world. Things that are strangled in particular ways and blood, drinking blood and that sort of thing. Essentially, it's like just stay away from that stuff. Right? Yeah, and, and the point is not to create a new law. Yeah, because they don't say don't do these things or you won't be saved. Right. They said you'll do well to avoid these things. Yeah, so so the way that it the way that it ends up because it's not only it's not only here in Acts where we have these conversations. The the group is called the Judaizers. Mm-hmm. Right? The mm-hmm. idea that you have to be come a Jew before you can become a Christian. Mm-hmm. And that Christians also who who weren't Jews first need to sort of backtrack mm-hmm. and revisit that Judaic history first. Mm-hmm. So the Judaizers are addressed not only in Acts, they're also addressed in Galatians. Mm-hmm. The whole book of Galatians is about this. Philippians? Uh, Philippians has some chunks on this. I believe that there's a portion of Ephesus and some of the well, the first letter to Timothy that includes some of these issues mm. where there seems to be Judaizers present. Mm-hmm. I would say this is probably the most addressed issue in the early church. As Most far as false teaching, yeah, for sure. Yeah, a- a- Rome, the letter to the Romans, yeah, has a lot of this. That's true too. Uh, yeah. And so, what they're what it, where they seem to land is, it's not necessary, mm-hmm. but also don't be a stumbling block. Yeah, I think that's that's what it that's what it really gets at, right? Is don't cause an offense. It it would be problematic, right? It'd be problematic for like because now that there are Gentile believers and you're continuing to want to witness to Jewish people throughout the empire, if Gentile believers are still involved in things that are even not directly pagan worship, but pagan worship adjacent, that is going to become an issue for witnessing to Jews because they're going to mm-hmm. be like, well, how can I, how can I be associated with someone who is doing X, Y, or Z, right? Right. So I think that that's, that's the heart, I think, behind these requirements. That yeah. And, and I think also with the Jewish requirements, as well, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's no reason for us to assume that the Jews, as they became Christians, immediately forsook every tradition that they had to remember how God had brought them this far. Oh, yeah, certainly not. I, I think I think Peter in Acts chapter—is it, it 10 or 11? Before he goes to Cornelius, where he has that vision you talked mm-hmm. about, I think mm-hmm. that shows that Peter was continuing at least some level of the practice of law. Oh, yeah. On what was clean and unclean food, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Those things had a symbolic representation that was still valid. Oh, yeah. They weren't about the anticipation mm-hmm. of the Christ to come that he was still anticipating, mm-hmm. which would have been problematic. Mm-hmm. They weren't about forgiveness of sin mm-hmm. through sacrifices, which would have been problematic. But they were about historical reflection mm-hmm. of what God had done to... Talk about things like holiness, separation, yeah, exactly, uh, and and acknowledging that in in earthly ways mm-hmm. to understand a spiritual truth, and so those those would have very well continued in a lot of places. Oh, for sure. And and this is bringing those cultures together to say, hey, you know what? There isn't law of ceremonial worship, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you don't need to be tripping each other up because yeah. some people still cling to these things. Yeah, yeah. So after that, there are more missionary journeys. Paul goes out again, and 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 this time he he keeps getting closer and closer to the heart of the heartland of the Roman Empire, right? So he crosses into Europe, into Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, then even into Athens, and he has an interesting <laughs> exchange there because now he's coming into contact with like the preeminent philosophers of that time, mm-hmm. Epicureans and Stoics in Athens, the kind of the, the, the origin place of, of so much of, of that contemporary philosophy and even f- philosophy that still um, is, is relevant and discussed and studied to this day. Right. And because as we said, Hellenistic Rome 
mm-hmm. was recognizing the Greeks as the most cultured of civilizations before. Mm-hmm. Although Athens was no longer the center of the universe, mm-hmm. as they believed it to have been under uh, Alexander the Great, it was still sort of that historical nod Mm. to a center of culture and thought, mm, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it held a lot of prestige and was, was very much uh, recognized in the time for that. Yeah, for sure. So a strategic place to be. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, I mean, he actually, what we see Paul doing is engaging with these Stoics and Epicureans kind of on their level. Like he uses a, a commonality, I, I guess, or, or he, he uses a bridge to bring together their system of belief with, that of Christian practice. Mm-hmm. And he makes that connection to say, Hey, like you have this altar to an unknown God. That God doesn't, it is knowable. That right. God is the source of everything that is here. And that God does not require your sacrifices. Does not like he did, like he's not served by human hands as though he needs anything. Um, but you know, and so anyways, and so it's an interesting kind of, shift of, of Paul being able to minister one way to Jewish to you know uh, Jewish communities and then another way to Greek philosophers right so instead of having your your normal up to this point mm-hmm. uh, means of presenting the gospel which is Christ is the fulfillment of this anticipated Messiah mm-hmm. here you have a secular it, it's it's like the first apologetic debates yeah right where you see you know, professors of Christian persuasion versus the seculars, and they take turns at the podium. This is the first bit of that. That's what Paul's doing here. Mm-hmm. And it's, like you said, it's a very different style, and it's the first real look mm-hmm. at how you go into a culture that has its own worldview mm-hmm. completely apart from a Jewish worldview mm-hmm. and reach out to them. Yeah. It's the beginnings of that. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it continues on. I mean, the the back half of Acts is really Paul takes center stage and he goes through all these different things. He ends up being arrested. He plays his Roman citizenship card Mm because Paul is one of those lucky few who actually is a Roman citizen. And so for that reason, he kind of gets shipped from one one level of uh, government to another. And he gets all these opportunities to witness to leaders on on different levels, um, but ultimately ends up in Rome and the book of Acts ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome. Now, most people think that this is a first of two imprisonments, that he was acquitted for a time and then was brought back and executed. We'll talk, we can talk about that in a moment, but I would, I'm of that. Yeah. As am I. And most, most biblical scholars would be. So the book of Acts doesn't finish with the end of Paul's story. There's more that we, we don't have the narrative for, but we have things that were written after that time. Right. And, and Paul's entire goal was to get to Rome, mm-hmm. as we know, he says himself, mm-hmm. I'm trying to get there, uh, and then go on to Spain, Yeah, which historically suggests that after that first imprisonment, he left and went on to Spain and came back mm-hmm. uh, for his final imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And, but this period that we're talking about, the, the period of openness that gave some space for Christianity to spread mm-hmm. um, and that and the spread through these missionary journeys is not a peaceful time no that openness is not entirely open mm-hmm. and there's a lot of fear and a lot of imprisonment and and just to work through we're, we're going to talk about some of the names mm. of people who were key players in the church this time uh, but in 44, not long after Pentecost, mm-hmm. we have James, that Acts chapter 12, mm-hmm. uh, martyrdom. Philip, mm-hmm. there are a couple of Philips, um, the evangelist, most likely, who spoke to the Ethiopian, mm-hmm. not the disciple, mm-hmm. uh, in 54, is put to death. Matthew, in 60, mm-hmm. James the Lesser. Uh, because there's like three Jameses in Scripture. <laughs> in 63, yeah. Mark is put to death in 64. Mm. Peter in 69. Paul in 69. Matthias in 70. Andrew in 70. 
now we're getting into uh, the time of Nero, where mm-hmm. things are getting crazy. Yeah, yeah. And Thomas in 70, uh, Simon the Zealot, 74. So all of this mm-hmm. time, we have major Christian persecutions and high-level leaders yeah. being put to death yeah, through all of this. It seems that early on, especially the the execution, as, as, as far as executions go, they're really targeting the the leaders. Mm-hmm. And so what that does within the Christian community is it creates a bit of a, a problem and a bit of a, a bit of a motive to get things down right on paper or papyrus in this right. case, right? Because those who witness these things firsthand were, were being targeted and executed. And so in anticipation of that, we get the New Testament being written, right? Right, Because the next generation is going to need to know what is true about Christ. Have you seen the movie entitled Paul, Apostle of Christ? I have not. It is fantastic. Okay. As far as Christian movies go, it is, it is fantastic. Okay. And very historically accurate. Okay. And they do a great job of depicting what it would be like to be in a persecuted group inside of Rome, so like mm. in the heart of it all, mm-hmm. being persecuted, starvations, executions. They've got to slip out of their you know, compounds from time to time for resources, and sometimes people come back, sometimes they don't. Mm. Even getting to the point where we see Christians beginning to be used as torches mm. to light the streets of mm-hmm. Rome, um, those kinds of things are documented in that film. Mm-hmm. And so the catastrophes of the period mm. cannot be overstated. No. And and what that does for us is it shines a different light on what it means that these people were traveling the world. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that Paul would say, I'm trying to get to Rome. Yeah. Why would you? Right, right. Why would you try to get to Rome? Mm-hmm. Right? When Paul's released from imprisonment at the end of Acts, that he would say, no, I, I am going to Spain. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just keep going. It just makes all of that that much more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even even when we look, like, sometimes I read through the epistles and you, you get to those points where you're like, this person is carrying the letter on for you. Right, mm-hmm. welcome them when they arrive with the letter. Mm-hmm. That person traveling it, possibly at the expense of their lives. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, it 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 just amplifies the commitment that these people have to sharing the gospel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it also does this. It undermines the secular arguments against Christianity. Sometimes people want to do a revisionist history on this early spread of Christianity. Mm. And they say, oh, well, the Bible talks about freedom for the poor, mm-hmm. right? And and the poor being blessed and all that. And that's what caused people to turn toward it because everything around them was just saying, it's all about the wealthy and the poor are the literally the plebes. That's where the word comes from. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and that can't be the case because mm-hmm. these people were dying for their faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people who were wealthy at one point were becoming poor. Right. Right. It wasn't lifting the, you know, the unwashed masses out of their terrible condition. It was essentially people saying this matters so much. My condition, my, my, my quality of life, my, my, my life itself doesn't matter. Right. So your conversion to Christianity is opening yourself up to a death sentence that you otherwise would not have faced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in, into this context, and so understanding that, I think again, to come back to the writings of the new Testament, it, it helps us. If we remember that it helps us as we're reading scripture to, to kind of understand and appreciate the context in which these were written and the Mm -hmm. people who were receiving these teachings. I I would highlight among all of those Mm -hmm. Philippians, yeah. It only it only takes about 10 minutes to read all of Philippians. Mm-hmm. But in that mindset, read Philippians. Yeah. Where you have a people who are being persecuted 
being encouraged by Paul, who is in prison in Rome. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, keep going. Mm-hmm. This is amazing, mm-hmm. right? How do, you, how do you beat an enemy like Paul? <laughs> you let him go, and he does the thing you don't want him to do. Right. So you imprison him, and he says, this is great because I didn't have access to any of these guards mm-hmm. because they're here at work all day. And now the entire court knows about the gospel of Jesus Christ because they let me in, right? Like, that's just his attitude. He's not like, I'm being kept from. He's like, they let me to the inside. Yeah, I got an inside track with all these people that were walled off because of their position as guards. And so then they're like, all right, I I guess we're just going to have to kill him. And he's just like, great, because that's better than living anyway. <laughs> How do you fight with a guy like Paul? You can't. You can't. It's great. Yeah, so so speaking of Paul and his, his writings, so some people, because we're talking about history here, we'll give you some, mm-hmm. some general historical framework. And I mean... The, the dates on this can can move a little bit, but right. generally an, an idea of of what of the timeline, because the, the epistles of Paul are not organized in historical order. Right. They're generally organized in longest to shortest, mm-hmm. more or less. Um, and so early on, you have the epistles from Paul to the Thessalonians, to the Corinthians, to the Galatians and the Romans. Those are probably in like the 50s AD. So right. like pretty early on um then during his first imprisonment that's when he's writing to the philippians and the ephesians and the colossians and he's also writing philemon and that's probably like early 60s around there um then when he's on mission again you know he's writing first timothy he's writing titus and then it's during what most people believe the second imprisonment the final one when he knows he's going to be executed Mm -hmm. that he writes second timothy the, the last one um, and that's late sixties because he, it's essentially a farewell address yeah. to Timothy, who was like his protege, his like, you know, spiritual son, if you can use that. Which I think is a good time to inject a bit of a study on why we trust the documents of scripture. Mm. There are a lot of people, secular people, when you look at this study, that's going to say, well, these documents weren't written till the third century. This was obviously late. Right. Here's the problem with that. One of the things that they'll use is they, they use the concept of the game telephone, mm. where you whisper into a person's ear, no one has access to what was said before and all that kind of stuff, and mm-hmm. it's passed around and it's different by the end. Mm-hmm. That's nonsense. These letters were publicly read, mm-hmm. and they were reproduced in mass mm-hmm. and spread out and publicly read. Mm-hmm. If you would, were to take the game telephone and use it as an analogy it would not be whispering in someone's ear it would be everyone sitting in the room together in a circle Mm -hmm. and the first person saying out loud what Mm -hmm. the message was Mm -hmm. and then it getting around to the last person yeah and then and then passing and making copies of the manuscript they read from right right and circulating that around right also these letters are twos and froms Mm -hmm. and so if paul is going to write the church in ephesus Mm -hmm. and he's going to say these are the people that are going to bring you the letter and it's to the church in Ephesus. If someone pops up mm-hmm. and they're like, hey, I found this letter. It's 200 years old, although not really, uh, <laughs> but li- written to the church in Ephesus. Then all of the church in Ephesus would be like, we've never seen that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. historical <laughs> record and background for this, yeah, right? These people, point, yeah. these people are still alive. It's yeah. only 2,000 years post-dated for us. Mm-hmm. It was yesterday for them. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the funny thing is, they like to say, this is how it all came about, and it's all real sketchy and all that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And then they like to say, in Nicaea, they wrote the Bible. And, <laughs> but, but what happens is, in Nicaea, there are all these mystery letters that start popping up, mm-hmm. and people are going, no, because if that was really written mm-hmm. to the people of this place, the letter would have been there right. historically at some point. Yeah, we would know about right? it, right? Yeah. So there's all this historical record of sending and reception, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very traceable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we should have full confidence mm-hmm. in these letters written. Not only that, but fragments and portions of these letters are found in historically dated yeah. first century oh, in yeah. mass. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you have the fact that you have, you know, fragments, there's, you know, fragments of the gospel of John from very, very early and other books from very, very early. The reality is that, like, the fact that you even have them at all that close to when they were meant to have been written is surprising and speaks mm-hmm. to speaks to the the um, the amount, like the degree to which they were circulated. Because for other ancient texts, and we might have said this on a, I don't know when we said this on a podcast episode a while back, but but for most ancient texts, when you're talking about Greek tragedies, when you're talking about Roman historians, some of the names we've dropped already, you generally have very few manuscripts of their writings, right. and you usually have a massive time gap, huge time gap between when they were meant to have been written and the oldest manuscripts we have. With the Bible, you have the shortest time gap by far. Mm-hmm. And the most numbers of manuscripts and fragments, by far, right? It is it is a more trustworthy historical document than Tacitus, or, than Josephus, or Plato, or Homer, or, or any, any of these people. Yeah. yeah. So that's I think that's the thing that people need to understand when it comes to comes to these. And when people say, "Oh, well, there are all these differences in the manuscripts," it's like a scribe misspelt a word, or spelt a word differently. Or like used punctuation slightly differently, or maybe he missed a line, like because because we believe you know they were given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but then after that when they're being copied, like people like scribes can mess something up, but we can look at the wealth of them because we have so many and say no, this is essentially what the the original said, right? And this guy just messed that word up, or this guy missed that line, or this guy added this parenthetical thing to say, and this is what that means. Right. right. And maybe shouldn't have done that. But and did. <laughs> and your your Bible mm-hmm. is honest about this. Yes, it there is. There is no the whole like the church is hiding. The church isn't hiding. No. This is where you get in things like the NIV and the ESV mm-hmm. a parenthetical statement that says this not all of the manuscripts have this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and so we do with it what we will. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So so those things are very honestly transmitted mm-hmm. and very well documented. Mm-hmm. If you're getting into church history, if this gets you excited to look in and read about stuff like that, and and you get into these things, you you also get into arguments like uh, this is being post-dated and claimed to be of Paul, but it's not, mm. right? It's called a pseudepigraphal right, writing, right? Right, because it has more authority if it comes from Paul. Mm. Well, also in the first century, we have Clement of Rome. Mm-hmm. Right, Clement of Rome is so early that he is mentioned in Philippians four, <laughs> verse three, as being there with Paul. Mm. Right, mm-hmm. he writes a letter to Corinth after Paul, essentially saying all the same things that Paul said. <laughs> so Paul writes First Corinthians, is like, guys, get it together. Yeah. And then later he sends Second Corinthians, like, guys, you still need to get it together. And Clement <laughs> writes later, and it's basically. Third Corinthians, right? <laughs> Guys, you're still doing that stuff. You need to get it together. Right, right. Right? And he doesn't do it pseudepigraphally. Mm. If anyone could, it would be his immediate disciple, Clement. Right. Yeah. Who says, no, Paul's gone. Everybody mm. knows that. Mm-hmm. This is me yeah. writing to you. Right. And so there's a lot of historical evidence for the authenticity and genuine practice of truth mm-hmm. in the early church mm-hmm. in these early writings yeah yeah uh do you want to talk about the gospels for a few minutes sure yeah we got time to talk about that this is a bit of a long one but that's okay we knew it, we knew it would be um so we have four gospels right and for some christians who haven't gone deep into study the differences between the four gospels cause can cause some serious problems for them Mm-hmm. Why is it phrased this way here? Why does this guy include this story and this guy doesn't? Right? Why? Like, what's what's? Why are these different? If they're all the same story about the same person, and the reason we need to understand that is that these were written for different audiences in different social contexts. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that the truth was warped, but it means that it's speaking into different situations, and highlighting different things, highlighting different things. Um, and, and understanding the 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 background of what was going on, and and who was receiving the, these gospels is going to determine right. It's just like if I was if I was giving an update of how my life is, and I'm writing to, you know, my sister in the UK, 
versus my dad who lives half an hour down the road versus, you know, uh, a missionary friend who's, you know, a foreigner in a different land. It's going to look different even in that sense, right? So what we need to understand is that, yeah, they're all kind of different. So this, again, this stuff is kind of generally agreed upon. Generally, most people think Mark wrote first. Some people think it was Matthew. It doesn't really matter. Um, mm-hmm. But that Mark wrote on behalf of Peter. And the reason we 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 think this is because Papias in, around 125 essentially said that. He is, and, and he's not the only early church father to say, yeah, Mark wrote when he was with Peter in Rome, and that's that's what it is. Yeah, so, so the Gospel of Mark is kind of the, the gospel, gospel of Mark according to Peter. Yeah, or the, or the gospel, gospel of Peter, Peter as portrayed by Mark. Yeah, sure, right? That he made you know careful study of everything that Peter told him about his experiences with Christ in that apostolic authority, and then Mark put it together. Which is a very similar thing as to what Luke does in Acts. Yes. In fact, you'll see in Luke a transition of pronouns. Mm. They went, and then all of a sudden you have these I statements, mm-hmm. we statements, mm-hmm. right? Where he's talking about things that have been told to him mm-hmm. by Paul, and now all of a sudden he's documenting things that he himself is experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are some transition moments like that yeah. uh, in, in Acts. But. Yeah. So, I mean, so you, in Mark, you kind of have this this recurring theme of, of the suffering servant, Christ the suffering servant. It's it's actually really heavy on action and lighter on the words than mm-hmm. Matthew or Luke or, or even John is. Um, and probably written to Romans, probably written in the context of persecution, that same persecution that, you know, Paul endured and Peter endured. That he would eventually endure. That, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, ex- exactly, yeah. Matthew writing to a Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the promised Messiah. There's The book of Matthew is full of Old Testament uh, quotes and, and allusions and fulfillments. It's It's heavy on this is the one that we have been waiting for. And here's his story. Right. It, it, it's a bridge. It's a great bridge between Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, Luke uh, writes to a Greek audience. Uh, Theophilus, the lover, which, which name means lover of God. So is that an actual person's name? Is that a code name? Is that just a general to those who love God? I'm writing to you. Right. In any case, he, he's the investigative journalist. Right. And, and Jesus is the savior of all. Um, he is kind of the, the, the son of God, the perfect, perfect human, human beings as they were meant to live, as they were meant to walk in perfect um, unity with the will of God. Um, again, when you're writing to a more kind of philosophical group of people, that, that's a good way to get across to them. And then John, I mean, John just gets super deep theologically. And I think he's writing to a more established Christian audience. John Calvin says something to the effect of if if the synoptics, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, mm-hmm. because they are telling the historical account very interchangeable. Sure. Yeah. In many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if the synoptics tell the story of Jesus, John tells the heart. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. That's not an exact quote. It's yeah. something to that end. Yeah. That is that is uh, at the beginning of his commentary on John. Yeah. And when you're like, well, why is the order different in Mark than it is in Luke? It's like because one is writing more of a biography start to finish chronology and the other one is putting stories together that teach certain truths. Right. Right. And they're so, not contradictory. No. They're just they're different. Co- complementary. Yeah. 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 So that's 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 kind of the, a blurb on that. And 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 when these were written, I think is important. And and I think there's good reason that they were all written pretty early. Yep. Yeah. In fact, we have we have amazingly early fragments of Mark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. First century fragments of Mark. Yeah. Let's talk about the early church, because a lot of times people look into this history yeah. and you'll hear people say, we just want to be as close to the early church as we can possibly be. Mm. That is a statement that mm-hmm. people make oftentimes as a way of saying that we want to be pure mm-hmm. and right. Yeah. Was the early church, the <laughs> was the early church pure and right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, not even close. No, no. The reason we have the epistles 
it's for that very reason. It's because the early church was not pure and right. It was full of problems. They, you know what the early church and the uh, modern church have in common? Human beings. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Sinful human beings that are trying to understand what it means Mm -hmm. to receive the gift of grace Mm -hmm. and live in righteousness. Yeah. And pursue Christ-likeness. Oh, yeah. And and I will say, not only was the early church not perfect, mm. in some ways, the modern church has matured mm. to a level of righteousness that the early church would have dreamt of. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Let's think about those letters to Corinth. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, there's there's some pretty nasty stuff going on. There, there's some stuff in Corinth yeah. you wouldn't read to your children. I th- yeah, I think there's a lot of... What I see when I look at the themes, like the, the issues that were being addressed in the epistles, like there's just a ton of parallels to, mm-hmm. to, to the modern, modern situation, right? We talk about like people just putting up with sexual immorality and saying like, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's, that's going on. Um, favoritism. Right. Division over silly things. Yep, that that's you know, that that continues that to be an issue. Right. The people um, sliding into legalism. Mm -hmm. Right. And saying, oh, we have to we have to bring in all these additional rules and additional laws. And it's not really by faith alone. It's faith plus whatever. Right. Or those who are antinomians and just kind of like, well, you know, it's it's fine. It doesn't matter what you do. It's just, you know live the way you want to live and you're good because Jesus has you and that's fine. Paul is fed up with both. Yeah. And addresses the legalist to Mm -hmm. say, no, grace does what the law could never do. Mm -hmm. And then he says, so then when I say that, people are like, oh, grace. So does that mean that we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Paul addresses both of those in his letter to Rome Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. in his other letters as well. But those consecutively right there together mm-hmm. in Rome. Yeah. And, and even, even like, you know, we talked about the Judaizers. There's also kind of the early expressions of like Gnosticism at this time. Um, it kind of becomes more robust later on, but I think we need to define Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is kind of a collection of spiritual philosophies that create this weird, uh, distinction between the physical and spiritual realm. Right. Oftentimes the, uh, spiritual is all good. The physical is all bad. That's right. So when g- generally when, when Paul says spirit is willing, flesh is weak, mm-hmm. Gnostics would say yes, one hundred percent and perfectly defined. Yes, perfectly separate from one another. Right. And so and and so and and even that we get we get a bit of that because then these these Gnostic cults existed and then kind of embraced Christianity in their own way. Right. Right. Kind of how like new age philosophies today can kind of incorporate some a a particular version of Jesus Christ into their system. Which is why Paul has to defend in epistles the bodily resurrection of Jesus Mm -hmm. as the firstborn of the resurrected. Oh, yeah. And to say if Christ was not resurrected, we above all people Mm -hmm. are to be. Oh, yeah. And it's why and it's why I think Luke is is intentionally includes Jesus after his resurrection saying, touch my hands. Mm -hmm. Do you have food for me to eat? Right. Right. Because, because what the Gnostics would teach was, well, if, if Christ was victorious and he had achieved victory and all these things, he couldn't have a physical body. Right. Because a physical body is bad. And the hyper Gnostics would say, he never did. They didn't understand holograms <laughs> at, the, at the time, but they would be like, maybe it was just this spirit that seemed to take on human form. Right, yeah. Who seemed to eat and walk and all of these things, who seemed to die, mm-hmm. but literally always a spirit. Right. Right? Uh, they would take it that far. Oh, yeah. Because you can't have that intermingling of mm. spirit and flesh and still have righteousness. Yeah. So that was early Gnosticism. It's addressed in scripture. We've already talked about the Judaizers, mm-hmm. a false teaching that was being put forth mm-hmm. that is addressed in scripture. Culturalists, those people who were the antinomian, the, not the legalists, but the antinomians, mm-hmm. you, you can do whatever you want to mm-hmm. uh, because it's all about grace and once saved, always saved and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things have been around so long that they are recorded in scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. And, uh, and I think as we look forward into, you know, into the rest of this study, and we've probably covered a lot of things that, you know, a lot of people might already be very familiar with if they read mm-hmm. their Bible a lot. 
Um, and now we're going to kind of, you know, we're starting next week. We're going to be transitioning into a phase of history that people are going to be maybe a lot less familiar with. But what we're going to continue to see time and time again is that things pop up, but then they pop up again in history and pop up again. And then maybe we're even dealing with some kind of form of the same problem today. Right. Right. Like we're going to deal with some of these big questions that, that keep popping up and it's going to be helpful for us as we go through this study of history, because it's going to help us understand how, how did this come to be? How was this dealt with? Where, where did, you know, where did the church land in handling this difficult situation or this difficult question? And hopefully it'll, it'll affirm, you know, the, the orthodox biblical views that we hold today as being, this is something that has been tested, right? Um, this is, this is not, you know, these issues that we're facing today are not new and, and we can stand firm because we have a rich heritage of those who've stood firm for hundreds and even a couple thousand years. Yeah. So this week we covered 110 years of history. Yeah. That's not bad in an hour and five minutes. Yeah. Uh, next week, we're going to cover basically one year. Well, yeah. Maybe and, technic- and, it's, and it's ramifications. Yeah, maybe like four or five kind of lead up. But yeah, yeah. Essentially, 70, 70 AD. Essentially, yeah. Is yeah. very powerful. It is. And my number one argument for all of these things happening early, mm-hmm. first century, is because there's no reference to the events of 70 AD. Mm-hmm. And had those already have taken place, there is no way mm-hmm. these letters would not include an acknowledgement of that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because it's big. It's huge. And that's next week. Stay tuned. Ooh, cliffhanger. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We'll see you in 7080. <laughs>